This is Game Theory, our podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me, Nick Andrews, and my brother, Chris. In this episode, is America really falling apart? In recent years, a number of long-form writing has surfaced, suggesting that perhaps America's better days are behind it. There are books that dive into the rise and fall of great empires and podcasters like us, drawing parallels, of course, to Pax Romana, the glory days of the Roman era. Most of the writers have the same observations. First, a continuing political, class, and educational divide is bad. And that countries do, in fact, have life cycles, and that this is natural. You can discuss whatever you'd like as a cause. Reaganomics, the Clinton impeachment, 9-11, the single-party Obama cabinet, the 2016 election, and on and on and on. But the key point is the same. America feels headed toward the home stretch as the world's great power. We want to ponder whether that's true, why it's happening, and what can be done. And welcome to episode 76, the 76ers episode of Game Theory Podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, because this is a 76ers episode. It's not an episode about basketball. But we do know that we're not going to advance past the second round. Oh, basketball Got joke. Got him. Trust the process. Trust the, trust the process is a term that was... Uh, we, that's actually would be a good episode. Trust it. You know what? Tanking in sports might be a good episode for us to talk about because when the Sixers said that, they were like, hey, we're losing on purpose. They said that on purpose. We're losing on purpose. And now people just say trust the process whenever they mean, hey, shut up and leave me alone. I'm trying to do what I'm trying to do. And it's a great term. It's a really good way to believe in yourself in a way that sounds like you've thought seriously about the situation. That's a good call. Like, I got a couple of speeding tickets because I was late to work. Like, well... Could I solve some problems? Yeah, yeah, but just just trust the process. Trust okay. the process and process. Trust the process. Speeding tickets are going to be a part of that. Being late is going to be part of that. No question. One process I don't trust is the rise and fall of empires and nations, which is what this today's episode is about. The five stages of empire. Why nations quick. fail? Yeah. No, we'll get to that in a second. We got a lot of dancer answers. with me. You don't want to. You don't want to. No, we got to. Dan- I'm just saying. I'm introducing the top. Jesus, someone's a little sensitive on the Sorry, road this I week. Just, I just. I, I want to I want to romance it a little bit. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, we're just, you know going to introduce the topic, then we'll come a, a, a back to it. Summer book club starts with this episode. If you haven't downloaded the, the Fable app, I will have a, maybe if I'm ambitious, have a link in the Google Play Store or the uh, the Apple App Store uh, in the link for you, the description for you to download the app. The app works. It's kind of a live thing. You go week to week or month to month in a book club. There will be a game theory with our our logo in it. It'll be a book club. Anybody that has Fable can join. And we're going to go week to week, and then we're going to do a book club episode. That will be a special episode. We're not going to, that's not going to be a real episode, of course, because we wouldn't short the people who don't want to spend the summer reading. I would never, never besmirch those people. I've been that person for no. many, many years. No. <laughs> it, it, consider it a bonus round. Yeah, really. exactly. It's a bonus round. It is a bonus round. Maybe it'll be on a Thursday or a Saturday or something. I don't know. We'll, 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 be something. We'll, we'll figure it out, but you'll see it. We're going to talk about the swerve as our first book in the, the club. First book. I'm, I'm actually really psyched about this. Nick, when you were pitching me on the book, yeah, yeah the, Stephen Greenblatt, the Swerve, winner oh. of the he's the winner of the Pulitzer Prize. This book won the National Book Award in when did, when was that published? Like I think that 13, 2013. Uh, Really, so, so it's it's been around for a while. The ideas yeah. have been out there, and for whatever reason, this one doesn't get into the popular mainstream, I guess, discourse as much as like Malcolm Gladwell's books do. But it is a really, really interesting nonfiction book about how the discovery of manuscripts help the world become more of like a modern place and, and it, it helped the powers that be disseminate knowledge and preserve knowledge in a more interesting and valuable way. I, th- I think it's a really, really exciting prospect. Nick has actually already, you've actually read the book, right? I read the book quickly. So I, I uh, was dabbling with becoming a history nerd, specifically medieval history. Um, and I, I have a lot of reasons I really like it. And I think it's actually for where we are in Western society now would be really important for people to understand medieval Europe and, and like different factions and kingdoms and things. But um, 
it was it was really interesting and serendipitous for me because medieval history there's not a lot of sexy things going on until like Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones and blah 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 like that's all fun but <laughs> yeah, that's all Lord, fake. Of the, Lord of the Rings that famous chapter yeah. of medieval history right well that's the thing and I've actually pitched that that's my one little bit of scholarship somebody said this is a great idea for a paper and then I said I well I can't travel there and they're like okay well maybe next time I I had an academic tell me I had a great idea for a paper so that was it but what I was what, what, what was what was the idea we're not gonna we're not gonna escape past so my this. thesis that um, yeah so I there I was responding to calls for papers and I still kind of check and see if there's anything that aligns with either medical media or with uh, medieval history that I could kind of do. And this was medieval history in media. And my thesis was, and I, there was, there's tremendous research on this and I, I knew where to find it. And I could have done this if I'd quit my job and like had you know money. But um, the thesis was that medieval era stuff, media is all fantastical like there's magic and dragons and things in them and my thesis was that's because the the period is so dark historically there's no there's not very many literate people there weren't diaries it wasn't preserved their their masonry work wasn't uh capable of landing standing the test of time like it was in rome for many other reasons that we don't really know what was happening on a day-to-day basis and what was happening on a database day-to-day basis sucked so bad that when we look back on the period the only way to make it interesting is to make it a fantasy. And th- this guy really liked that. Like all of them are like that. I classified medieval history as based on the tools and the clothes that they were wearing. So Lord of the Rings could be set like Star Wars in a galaxy far, far away, many years in, in the past or the future. And it, did, it doesn't matter. But the clothes that they were wearing are what we would kind of wear now. Weaponry, that kind Cannot of Cannot recommend enough to you reading a book called uh, The Discarded Image. C.S. Lewis wrote it. It's about medieval literature yeah i mean i was so there's much more there's much more going on than than you might think yeah for sure it's not necessarily like the day-to-day type of stuff right but this book was um it was popular and it's kind of at the this book takes place at the pivot of medieval history and the renaissance and it's about how lucretius's poem changed the course of human humanities and it's really cool and it's it's got a lot of game theory kind of a game theory podcast adjacent kind of topics where like this decision that decision humanities what are we doing how a papal secretary kind of a nerd um i think he was a monk or he was a holy man and he was just looking for manuscripts to copy and he found a lost copy of this book that had been lost for like a thousand years and then now here we are having podcasts it's kind of his fault what (laughs) yeah so for those of you who want to get mad at us and there have been a few yeah we first of all we respect your opinion yes second of all we agree with you (laughs) we don't like this either no but here we are and most importantly I, i guess the question is when when does this take? You said it's it's at the pivot of medieval history into the Renaissance. So like what? 1417. Yep. Okay, that actually is a really interesting coincidence for us because mm. the the topic of our episode today. Whoa, segue hit might, it. Oh, segue. If it's I so might <sighs> is using history, especially pre fifteen hundred history, to yeah. determine the causes of political crisis and social collapse. <sighs> In societies. What a segue was from that? our boy. And that was, we did not align the book with the episode Thank today you. at all. We stumbled. That was amazing. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Thank you. It feels good. Yes. It feels really good to be this accomplished. Yeah, and I, I got to thank, you know, God, first of all. <laughs> then I got to thank you, Nick. Yeah, and all the little For people. demonstrating your, your segue prowess. But it is a really interesting concept. And it's also based on something that was written by somebody and which we read and we found pretty interesting. Did yes. you, uh, what, what, so what do you, what do you think about the primary source topic for today? Uh, you mean the Atlantic article that you I'm sent me? I'm referring to the Atlantic the article Atlantic by article. one Peter Turchin. Yeah. America is headed toward collapse. Yeah. So the, the idea that like, I guess the two party system and the political divide between the country being like a, 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 a gateway through which everything can fall apart. It was really fascinating to me because this goes back to, I think it was um, Andrew Jackson talking about the silent majority. Like you don't really know what the average person thinks, but the people who are loud are driving the divide and then everybody's got to pick sides. I found that kind of was stuff. It, was that Andrew? That was Andrew Jackson. I the think, first that term? I think so. I remember that. I remember bits and pieces. Like there are certain lectured uh, uh, things from, from college that I remember. I think I remember that because he lost the presidential election and then he won by, he kind of invented negative campaigning in the United States. So, I, I just looked up that term, in case you're wondering, and if Wikipedia is to be believed, well, the term was popularized by Richard Nixon yeah. 
1969 when he talked about the great silent majority of my fellow Americans. I ask for your support. And I mean, maybe it was, say what you want about Nixon. And th- by the way, this is a plug for Dan Carlin's <laughs> podcast. Dan Carlin is a historian who has just a ton of podcast episodes on really interesting stuff. And he's like a real no kidding researcher. He's going to give you way better information than we could. No kidding. Like he had an interesting take on Nixon that was like, what there, there are, there are, Nixon is a very charged figure in American history and he no carries question. a lot of different freight for a lot of different people. But I think there are, there are significant reasons that like Nixon gets a bad rap for good reason, but also Nixon gets a bad rap for not so good reasons. And it, it, anyway, regardless, the silent majority was, it, it's popular in American discourse now, apparently because of him. Uh, it was also employed by Calvin Coolidge okay. in the 1920 presidential election. I don't know. I don't know about that. And this is just according to the to the Wikipedia, like I said. So I'm sure you're right that Andrew Jackson has used this term before, but uh, Coolidge and most recently Nixon. I, s- I seem to remember that, but I don't. Yeah, I don't. I might, might be incorrect because I know that he was incredibly mad about v- losing. Something. Yeah, he's, he's just about losing. Guy. Yeah, Andrew Jackson is not. I don't think that we should be memorializing him as much as we are. Great general, bad president, in my opinion. But... Yeah. We'll debate that later. Regardless, this 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 idea of the two party system kind of dividing things and like there is this or that when in fact most people are just a Venn uh, just a, a a Venn diagram of everything. Like oh, I kind of believe this, I kind of believe that. Which what a catastrophic failure it would be when most people don't align with either side of a political spectrum or an ideological spectrum, and, and that people in the middle kind of allow it to fail. But yes, so that's part of it. The other part of today's episode that I find kind of interesting is that people have been predicting the fall of America for a while in line with the fall of Rome and the fall of Greece and the fall and the, the fall of the United Kingdom and the fall of France as well. So t- tell us about the article. Yeah, so this guy, uh, Peter Turchin, the, the, this guy is a, he's a historical kind of researcher. He's not a historian importantly, and, and that'll come up later, but he actually wrote this article as kind of a promotion for an upcoming book that he has. It's called end times uh, elites, counter-elites, and the path of political disintegration. And the basis of the book is some formalized research that he and a very large research team conducted over using data from hundreds of societies across 10,000 years to try to figure out what causes political crisis and what causes social disintegration in a significant way. He says, so in the article, he in describing the research for the book, he says, we examine dozens of variables, including population numbers, measures of well-being, forms of governance, and the frequency with which rulers are overthrown. We found the precise mix of events that leads to crisis varies, but two drivers of instability loom large. He said the first is what they are calling popular immiseration, which is when a lot of people experience economic decline at the same time across broad swaths of the population. And then he said the second is more significant, it's elite overproduction, as in the overproduction of elites. So he says, when a society produces too many super rich and ultra educated people and not enough elite positions to satisfy their ambitions, that is a driver of political instability. And if I'm looking at this and I'm, I don't know, sitting at some truck stop diner in Iowa or something, and I read this article, I don't know why I'd be reading The Atlantic <laughs> if I was sitting in a truck stop diner in Iowa, but if I did, I would look at that and, and think about Washington, D.C., and think about the laptop class. Like the, the the permanent bureaucratic class of leaders who weren't democratically elected, but who are doing things like national security work and domestic policy and blah, blah, blah. And I would think, yeah, we got too many of those darned elites. And I would think, oh, yeah, this is really great. And so this has been true for 10,000 years. Well, how about that? It's a really interesting premise. And in some ways, it does seem to make sense. And you know, Nick, I know you know a little bit about the Roman Empire. I, I recently had the great good fortune of taking a class on the Roman Republic, which predates the empire. Right. And one of the main causes of collapse there was the ability of really wealthy, powerful elites like like Crassus and Pompey and then eventually, of course, Caesar and, and whomever else. Those people were able to use their wealth and influence to get armed forces to be loyal to them personally. And their personalities within the political system became so large. They loomed just hugely casting a shadow over the entirety of, of the Roman populace, that it became less about patriotism to the concept of the state of Rome and more about loyalty to them personally. And there just wasn't enough room within Roman society. Like the, the, the city was too small. 
the countryside was too small. The empire was too vastly spread out, and there weren't enough like real handholds of of lasting power for people's political ambitions to be satisfied. And that's why Caesar had to like go conquer Gaul because success in the political system was contingent on success in military conquest. And so if you think about this in terms of elite overproduction and economic, like widespread economic uh, immiseration, it kind of sort of makes sense if you're vaguely familiar with what happened in the Roman Republic. So this, this story out of the Atlantic, this article that's promoting the book, it seems like a really interesting concept. And then you can draw parallels to what you might know a little bit of history about and what you might think about modern day American politics. Yeah. So, Yes. So the, 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 the Roman Empire fell for a number of reasons. And one of the most interesting things about it is that we don't really know. All we can kind of look back on is, is see kind of things crumbling and, and different aspects of things that kind of related to other societies that have crumbled in, in the interim. And as a result of that, be like, okay, well, they have these kind of things in common. Uh, but also the Roman Empire was so vast and it's such a unique situation geographically that there really isn't another, it doesn't have a comp, I guess. Parts of the South China Sea are comparable uh, just because water was so important as a way to get around and to ship things. You also had to have the ability to grow stuff. So China and Rome, and then I guess you could probably say uh, the Mississippi River and all of those people who have been destroyed in their history kind of uh, cleansed um, ethnically from our history books. Mm. But uh, the major waterways, um, the Amazon, those are where people live, the Nile River, because you have to have water for two reasons. One is food and the other is um it's your super highway yes and it's it's your highway it's your interstate that's how you that's how you get around so rome falling for a number of reasons is you know that's part of the deal we have to say that caveat because nobody knows they're like the roman empire fell because they let the goths in the roman empire fell because they got fat the roman empire fell because they kept poor people down like probably yes all of that i would imagine probably played a part in all of it um and people cite that for immigration and all this other shit so that's part of it the other part of the article that i found interesting is that (laughs) Calling something historical data to me as a huge history nerd is tough because data are data. They are facts. History is not as factual as you would think it is. And I know that what I'm saying sounds weird. But remember, in this, in this podcast, we, we follow the triangle of truth, the triangle, the experience triangle, fact, reality, and truth. Fact yeah, is this, the, Mr. Mr. Epistemology over here has come up right. with, the, with a revolutionary system of understanding the world around us. So when we look at... I mean, I guess, how would I say this? The, the victors write history, man. Like, so what we know about the Roman Empire were written by the people that had won the political struggles and had won the wars, so we don't fucking know. Well, well some, sometimes that's true. Yes. But other times it's not true. So, like, for example, uh, Cicero lost significantly. Yeah, true, yeah. But a lot of his writings survive, and they really characterize a, a, a lot of... The, so I, I heard it, a really interesting argument about the way Cicero characterizes some of his adversaries, one of whom was Caesar later on. And this person, the person who was telling me this, had studied the Roman Empire. Was this is like an instructor at a university, and he said he he was like a big Caesar guy, and he said a lot of the reason people don't like Caesar or kind of like oppose Caesar is partly because it, you know, not everybody is going to go read books about like the biography of the person, and they're going to know like kind of vague references, and they probably will have read like the Shakespeare play at some point in high school, and like, oh yeah, one man sees and all that power. No one man should have all that power. Um, R.I.P. to the artist formerly known as Kanye. <laughs> yeah. But he said the other part of that is this kind of characterization of this of Caesar as this like uniquely ambitious and uniquely vicious personage in Roman history. But that's because that characterization was based on a lot of like speeches by Cicero, who was a political opponent of Caesar. So the way Cicero used his immense rhetorical skill to basically bully his political adversaries, cast them, cast a pall over their image. And he said, you know, if you get down to it, in the early life of Caesar, there aren't really enough writings. Like Cicero hadn't found this guy yet and he hadn't, really before he was like Caesar Caesar there's not enough information about him to understand like other than some vague references why is this guy so charismatic why is this guy so good as a natural leader and people say like there's this guy named uh, Metellus and somebody said oh yeah and he he was like a really ambitious he was like one of these climbing the climbing the political ladder in in the Roman Republic and someone said oh and Caesar I I see 10 Metelluses 
It, it, as if to say, like, yeah, this guy's way more ambitious and way more powerful. But other than those, like, occasional hints in his early life, people don't really have a clear picture of, like, what it was about Caesar's personality that made him what he would eventually become. So the, 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 the history is written by the victors, but sometimes it's also written by the bitter losers as well. Sorry, yeah. Cicero. As but, long as they're not killed, that's definitely that's right. definitely Yeah, possible. that's true. And as, and as long as the writings survive too i mean that's that's another major factor it's like right. our our there is a dearth of historical information in the form of easily accessible and translatable writings so it's hard to piece things together unless you get like really lucky and find an old manuscript or something yeah so okay let's go back to the atlantic article and we're gonna we're gonna mix in some david muir and stuff because he wrote i think the the five life cycle the life cycle of empires the five stages of empires which is kind of also predicting america's eminent collapse and i'll be honest with you the doomsday shit that's happening right now is uh i just don't want to think about it. There are a couple things that are freaking me out right now. Number one is like everyone just kind of factually accepts that aliens exist now. There's not, it's not <laughs> only is there not like pushback and everyone's, everyone's just like, yeah, they exist. I'm kind of bored by this. Like, um, so at this point, I do want to refer player three. If you're new to the, <laughs> to our last to the game, yeah. one of our early episodes was on something called Drake's equation mm -hmm. and Drake's equation takes a, a very high level data free look at, how many alien civilizations probably exist somewhere out there in the cosmos. And the math is like, it's somewhere between like almost certainly one and like millions. millions. And for, uh, I also want to point out Fermi's paradox where he's like, okay, so there's supposed to be like the, the cosmos is unimaginably huge and there are unimaginably many stars with unimaginably many planets. And like at some point throughout this like 14 billion year old history of the universe, aliens have to have, there have to be other civilizations out there somewhere. So the paradox is that's true, but where is everybody if that's yeah. the case? Yeah. So, and then you're, you're talking about the video out of Las Vegas recently, right? I'm talking about literally everything over the last three years. There are people from governments like, yeah, they exist. And then like blogs are covering it. Mainstream news is covering it. There's like a CIA report that's like, yeah, that's mostly military testing. But then there's like this huge cop part of the report that's like, um, yeah, also that totally possible. Then people are like, there's body cam footage and there are calls. And everybody's just like, yeah, aliens exist and no one is freaking the fuck out. Like they get clicks, I'm sure. But no, everyone's like, whatever. I, I recently heard a take on a Barstool sports podcast that was like, you know what? No one's going to care about aliens until they like bring a building down or something. They're going to have to that's, show a force. <laughs> that's not untrue. It, and it would be like the most extraordinary claim truly in the history of the human species. Mm -hmm. Like our mm -hmm. first our first actual genuine encounter with extraterrestrial life would upend everything we think we know about everything. Right. And, you know, it would satisfy Drake's equation and people who, like, speculate about sci-fi novels and stuff like that and, like, people who actually do search for extraterrestrial life, like life on Mars and, and right. whatever else. But that would truly be the most extraordinary thing. And so you're saying people seeing, like, UAP, these unidentified aerial phenomena reports coming out of the government that and don't say they're aliens. People yeah. are like reading between the lines and they're like, oh, but there's a classified version. And like, guys, I'm going to tell you, whatever is in that classified, whatever you think is in that classified version is in there. Whether you think it says, yeah, there's aliens or that's, whether you think that's it how doesn't classified say, no, works. Yeah, that's how classified works. So yes. that's freaking so me out so a little you, bit that everyone's just saying, kind of accepting things. Secondly, uh, we'll, we'll do another aliens episode as this gets bigger. Probably. We'll, we'll oh, yeah. that. The second thing that's freaking me out um, is climate change. And I just refuse to think about it. Uh, the third thing that's freaking me out is actually way scarier, which is this AI stuff. Um, that's starting to I was I was an AI algorithm guy. And now I'm like, hey, if we give a, a robot an algorithm and then make it so it can shut itself off. uh Oh, and then so I don't want to think about that. That's but the fourth thing is that the most well armed, violent, cocky country in the history of the world is now careening towards financial chaos and that to me is also part of it because while other empires have fallen and there have been other empires that have ruled the, their their sphere or the globe for much longer than we have those people didn't have citizens that had weapons of war that's a good point their ability to traverse space like i mean like physical i yes. don't mean outer space i mean like transfer yeah. the, the themselves and equipment across vast swaths of land and sea quickly they didn't have that in, in the way that we do now. That's why yeah. airplanes changed warfare so much in World War One with bombing campaigns and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. They didn't have nuclear weapons, which would cause like genuine mass destruction. There was chemical warfare and biological warfare where people would like Small smear pots, shit yeah. on arrows and like dump hot soup on people and stuff. But that's not that's not the same as like a huge mustard gas program as 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 some of the Axis and For sure. maybe Allied powers used in World War One. <clears throat> Don't worry about and, it. And you know, possibly World War Two, but. 
that that is a really good point. I mean, the, the progress of technology has made life better in a lot of ways, but it's also made it a little bit more. Da- it's it has sharpened the sword of Damocles in a, in a lot of ways. And Love so, that second think, episode in a row we mentioned the sword of Damocles. Sword of Damocles, baby. I mean, it's it's dangling up there. It is. And then so climate change could also be another example of that I think that's less of the sword of Damocles and more of like, you know, in the what's that what's that story that everybody reads in high school the pro- or the witch's persecution, Crucible. Crucible, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's where that when they like they, they like uh, they execute that guy by putting the stones on top of him. Yeah, yeah. Where they're like, uh, more yeah. and more stones, more and weight, like, more yeah. weight. Yeah, like if I'm a witch, I'm not a witch, right? Okay, so the the collapse of America is definitely freaking me out. But uh, one of the reasons is that every everybody that studies it and publishes a book uh, seems to conclude that this is happening. Now I understand how media works. Is how I feed myself. So I know that headlines and certain hypotheses and theses are going to uh, move the needle more than others, and that is definitely one of them. But there are some troubling observations that I think both in the Atlantic article and in uh, David Murin's work that like, wow, America checks a lot of boxes here. One of which is, did you know this? And we'll we'll break down the cycle in a minute. But did you know that one uh, retrospective observation for the end of major countries and empires is the rise of celebrity and in in particular celebrity chefs what yeah so it's not like hey there are more chefs and now the country's going to fall it's like all of these countries that fell right before they fell a lot of cooks were getting really famous and it, like is, it represents like money you, and stuff i've never heard of that in my entire life yeah it's in is this book real? yeah it's i mean well whether or not the conclusion is real or whether or not the guy drew the conclusion are two different things yes he drew this conclusion um or like he reported the observation uh, like Rome, like because people could afford higher food, and you could afford to not care about like farming and doing your manual labor. You could afford to be like, let's follow the chef around. Like I know five or six chefs by name, and if they own a restaurant in like the two or three towns I really like, I like going to it. Like I, I participate in this. I think that Anthony Bourdain is one of the greatest storytellers of my life. Was one of the greatest sports Was. storytellers. R.I.P. Sure. R.I.P. For sure. So that that's that's one of the five cycles. So should, do you want to get into the five cycles and like where America is at right now? Uh, yeah, I do because I'm very disturbed. I like Gordon Ramsay and I watch a lot of his shows. So sure, and, and and Player Three, save your hate. I, you know what? Actually, you know what? Don't save your hate. Bring it on. Hate feeds the dog. I eat hate <laughs> for breakfast the same way Gordon Ramsay eats that crappy food every time he goes to a shitty restaurant somewhere in the middle of America. That's what I eat. So bring it on. I love Gordon Ramsay and I am not afraid to admit it. Uh, yes. I, and I also, um, he's his, one of my favorite TikTok genres is him, uh, liking when he, he reacts to people making beef Wellingtons and when they do a good job, it's like a big deal for them. And I like that. Oh yeah. Positive reinforcement. It's a great, great genre. Okay. Here are the, here are the, the, the five cycles of empire, the life cycle of an empire. One regionalization Two ascension to empire three maturity, not maturity, maturity. <laughs> Shut the fuck. <laughs> yes. The, this, uh, just imagine like president Nick Saban. Well, if we're going to continue to have a world-class program, uh, proceed further into maturity. Maturity. Yeah, and what we really need as a country is for him to coach us. <laughs> uh, number four, overextension. And number five, decline and legacy. So regionalization is kind of boring. It's exactly what it sounds like. You're not a big deal, but you've got a regional plot of land. I would say like the 13 colonies might be an example or like westward expansion into the Northwestern Territory. Like that's kind of okay. that kind of stuff. Then that. number two is... Uh, ascension to empire. Um, or, yes. So that's when like you win a couple of wars. Now there's real territory for us. Our ascension to empire was between the Erie Canal. People don't give that enough credit. That's why we were the greatest country in the world. Uh, that led to winning the world wars. The Erie Canal is like the most important engineering prospect I w- or project in American history by far. One of the most important engineering projects in the history of the world. Look it up. If you don't think I'm, if you don't think I'm joking, I'm not joking. It connects to the Mississippi River and the Gulf of Mexico to New York City. It is why weird. I, I, yes. I know it's important, yeah. but I can think of like one other really famous canal that fundamentally changed global shipping. It kind of yeah, that's that yeah, good for them. But something that's about not why America's the goat. Something about a plan. Something about a canal. You know what I'm talking <sighs> no. about? No, Chris, tell me. Talking about the Nicaragua Canal. <laughs> the Nicaragua. No, I'm just canal. It was almost in Nicaragua. There's a really interesting book about it. Yeah. Um, well, that guy's a great writer. What's his name? Um. <laughs> yeah, he wrote. He wrote a short biography of Truman. Or no, he wrote a pretty good biography. Of Big Truman. Right. What the hell is short his name? About David Early something. Bro- yeah, he passed away recently, didn't he? Yeah. There's. I have a book about pioneers behind me. Uh, whatever. We'll figure okay. it out. 
I'm going to Google one of the titles, but but continue with the with the cycles. Yes. The, okay. So ascension to empire between the Erie Canal and the winning of World War II, the United States becomes an empire economically, globally. Also, the slaves are freed during that same period, and all of a sudden, we are we're we are on top of the world now. Then after ascension to empire is overextension, and that has more to do with the population and how much a role that the country plays in its regional and global politics. Does it sounding familiar to anybody? Hmm. And then the fifth stage is decline and legacy. This is when people start really caring about how they're viewed and how the country's viewed. Uh, multipolarity. The stage of decline and legacy can be described as the evolution of multipolarity. The unipolar world uh, dilutes as the hegemon grows feebler and challenging nations grow stronger and begin to exert newfound influence. Does this ring any bells? I think it rings bells in a way that suggests that people want this to be the case. Sure. Um, the, the interesting thing to me has not, is not really the country as its own thing and really much more about the population. So the, the generation to blame that started overextension and decline into legacy would be the baby boomers. The baby boomers were the first to win the major world war. They then really cared about, no, the fuck they were not. They did not win a world war. Do you know but why? They were the result of the war. They, they were the result of the war. They were the result yeah, of the war. They were the greatest generation, the, the silent greatest generation. generation. My bad. Yes, I know what I meant. They were the result. They were the okay. result of coming home to to the wife. Yes, I understand. And in in the fun way. In the fun way. So they they um. Jesus. <laughs> well, you're, you're gonna you're gonna say that, and you're I can't. Yeah, no, I, I, I alley-ooped it right to you. I, I was just right there. When you want, yeah, I mean, I don't blame you. It was I. You had to do it. So I was drive. I was driving through Pennsylvania recently, and I saw a big old statue of the that famous photograph of the sailor kissing that woman in New York City after they V Day, right? It was after VE Day. VE Day, yeah, yeah. That like really really famous photo. Yeah, it was like a huge statue of it. Yeah, that sounds right. It was like in the middle of Pennsylvania. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Saw some Confederate flags too, which, by the way, player three, if you're flying a Confederate flag, go fuck yourself. Oh, well, I agree. I think this yeah. is treasonous. I think it's treasonous myself. You're I, a loser. About the South. Yeah, Bat I, loser. Uh, also, um, I would like to shout out the people that sell that merchandise. They're smart. <laughs> that's like, that's like uh, you know, you can't knock the hustle. Like the people who write fake news articles, yeah. like I pure straight hate you. But damn it, do I respect you. hundred percent. Like that is just, it's <laughs> fiction. It's like, be careful though. You might find a religion that a bunch of Hollywood elites get yourself into. You might find a religion if you start doing that stuff. So, yeah, ooh, L. Ron Hubbard joke. People. Okay, so the, the way that the societies work and the, the, the fall of the empire to me is far more interesting. And it's like the celebrity chef thing. Everyone gets famous. They care a lot about getting famous. The other one, and this is like a catch-22 kind of thing, like the book. Sex starts to become non-taboo, then celebrated, and then boring. That's and like we're like Ooh, really no. and then like TikTok is with and with all the how famous people are. The other thing, so the baby boomers are who I'm blaming. That's in in our in our ascension arc, according to this stuff, the baby boomers are the ones that start overextending. They on themselves like the lines of credit and all of these people are retiring and they're not saving enough for their kids to have wealth. And then the price buoys up and there's no transition of wealth. While the people that have money and stuff are becoming incredibly rich, like they're the middle class is really starting to tear down the middle here. And that's sort of what this guy points out because what ends up happening is the lower classes there, the, the lower, when the middle class tears, the lower class gets bigger. And as a result wow. of that, it becomes a violent, tenuous situation. Like pop, from a population standpoint, the, the lower classes will get bigger. And that's when this guy, uh, Murin, he believes that, historically most empires end in a violent revolution and nobody really knows where each other's loyalty lies. It's the death of patriotism, which is something that you mentioned earlier that they don't care about mm -hmm. the country. They care about themselves and everybody cares about themselves. It's but there's, but there's still, so in, in the case of Rome, there are still appeals to patriotism. That yeah. was like the main rhetorical device that people used to try to rally like their own private armies or gain support from other people, from other smaller factions. It was loyalty to Rome as a kind of a sloganeering way of, of acquiring more power and influence. And I, you know, I, we say time and again, this is not a political podcast, no. but I do see the abuse of like the idea of patriotism, like, oh yeah, loyalty to America means loyalty to me. If you, if you love America and if you love the constitution, you'll do X, Y, Z. And those kind of appeals are, they're, they're troubling parallels. I don't know that it's sufficient to say that that's like, oh yeah, man, that's a sure sign that we're, 
we're circling the drain here. But it is a good point that it, it's not like an American thing to appeal to patriotism for some other personal selfish cause. That's a common factor that Every shows up country. time and again in the collapse of large, far-reaching empires. I would say that, I mean, what I think that the story of Russia is a tragedy um, and not a, a, a Shakespearean comedy, but I would consider Russia to be in this thing as well, um, all the way back to the Soviet Union days and before that, they just kind of went through, you know, a, a path diverges in the yellow wood and they went the other way and it, it's, um, it's, it, it's apparent, but it's also a collapse of a great, a great empire and you could see the crooked leadership appealing to patriotism all the time. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely part of it. The other thing, the most damning thing, is that what they all have in common, and this is France, this is the United Kingdom, this is parts of China before communism, elected officials, appointed officials, or imperial officials in every country that collapses eventually stop being service members and they start using political authority to do things like insider trading and buoy their own wealth. Like the only purpose of being a member of Congress is to get rich. And we're fucking there. Like that is a thing. This unusual Wales guy deserves to win a Pulitzer Prize for journalism, in my opinion. This guy is... You don't know about Unusual Whales? No. Unusual Whales was a Twitter account and a TikTok account and a YouTube account. And all he did during the pandemic, I think he started, was because these people have to disclose their stuff. If you're an elected official, you have to disclose your moves, including the stocks that you buy. And all he does is track every single elected official in Congress. Now, I think many governors and things, too. And all he does is check their trades. You can buy ETFs just based on Congress. You can buy. This guy has created ETFs like the Pelosi ETF is the best performing ETF in the United States for like wow. a period of time. He's that like, yeah, shocking. they're insider fucking trading. And he's just pointing it out. He's just like, look at every... So now he's like, if they're going to do it, you do it. If, if the guy, I forget the guy, I don't want to generalize, but the guy with the eye patch, the, the congressman with the eye patch, he... Um, oh, yeah. He I, bought, I, I know he, who you're talking about. He bought Meta at an all-time low because he knew that this TikTok shit was going to come up and he knew they were going to lay people off. So he bought Facebook and he like, it's doubled. Man. Yeah, That's they're, they are insider trading. And this is not a United States problem. This is like Rome did that. All of these people that were in Congress, they're like, no, nah, I just want my own plot of land, man. Wow, that's that's really that's really upsetting. Yep. It, well, and and I I don't know that it's as easy to draw those same parallels to an example like the Roman Republic because mm-hmm. I mean the, the, I don't know if there were like parallels to insider trading, and a lot of the politicians were much more brash about it. I mean they they, they were just more brazen. Like they're they were explicit about trying to acquire wealth and power for themselves. I mean, they, they were still political and they still tried to work within the system, but basically it, one of the, one of the first pairs of people that undermined like the normal, and I say normal is in the sense of like, it's a norm, like the normal Roman political process was these two brothers. They're called the Gracchi brothers, uh, Tiberius and Gaius. And one of the things they did was, they wanted to reform the land, and I, I won't go into the details because I don't know them super well, but I do know that one of the priorities that they had was like, okay, we have to secure land for people who leave their farms to go fight in these like overseas or abroad conquests, and they go on a seasonal basis, and a lot of times these guys would go fight, and they would come back, and the, like their wife and children couldn't tend the land, so people would just buy it up. Yep. And... Tiberius Gracchus wanted to reform that so to say like, okay, there's an upper limit on how much land you can get and we're saving that for the people who come back from military campaigns. And people were pissed about that because a lot of people had already bought land and so they were going to redistribute land that people had already bought from abandoned farms from soldiers. And so it was against the interest of the elites at that time. And in the very short story of what Tiberius Gracchus did was he circumvented the Senate by a, he became a tribunate of the the plebeian class, like the lower class of right. like menial workers, and he was able to get legislation passed by basically like ramrodding it through with that channel without the approval of the Senate. And a lot of this is because there wasn't as much of like a formalized legislative structure in the way that like you can't do X Y Z or there's a procedure for every single process. And a lot of it was based on norms. Like it was the norm to go through the Senate to approve legislation. And this guy knew that if he was going to follow the norm, then he wasn't going to get what he wanted. They weren't going to approve the idea. So he just went around that. And so all of this to say, like, there may not be like an insider trading parallel, but there certainly was, it became normal for people to go around the established, like, way of doing things, even though it wasn't illegal, 
they kind of undercut the the norms based structure there. And one of the consequences of this, like the last thing about I'll say about Tiberius Gracchus, uh, he was killed for this. Yeah, there were there were had been cases of political violence before, like in the Roman kingdom before it like really became a republic and, and had a constitution and all that. But he was really the first most prominent case of political violence where he did something that was legitimate. He did something that was disfavorable to the interests of elites. And he was like publicly killed for it. Like a mob went after him and, and beat the shit out of him and killed him yeah. because he passed land reform legislation that took land away from wealthy owners and gave it to people who were like fighting to win glory for the Roman empire. Yeah. And that, um, that's kind of what feels like is happening right now. Like the only billionaire in the world that I feel like has complete favor without being questioned by anyone. And I mean this seriously is Taylor Swift. <laughs> Well, you, you obviously weren't following when she was dating that guy that people on the internet really, really She hated. wasn't Did dating you, him. She was banging him. Everybody likes yeah. a rebound. Come on you, now. Well, I don't know if you know this. Nick, Taylor Swift fans have unionized. I have Do you know how much effort goes into fan work? If Honestly, though, I hope that they get it. And I will tell you why. Because I would like to unionize against my favorite sports teams and make decisions for them. Um, <laughs> yeah, I also want to share the management of the Detroit Red Wings. That would be great. I would like to be part of the deal there as a fan. I have put in far more work than the ownership has to winning championships. So well, I have speak, seen that. Go, 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 ahead. go ahead. No, I was just going to say Taylor Swift is an ethical billionaire. All other billionaires, allegedly ethical billionaire. Every other billionaire. We're going to do a Taylor Swift episode. Where we'll talk about that because she is really interesting. Every other billionaire is not only questioned, is somewhere between questioned and hated. Like Mark Zuckerberg walking down the streets of, of like uh, Dallas or in Manhattan might not be a safe situation for him. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a occupational hazard. Yeah, which is crazy because like it used to be, he was celebrated not 10 years ago. And I, and I think sometimes it's because their decisions are so public. Sometimes their decisions are so bad. I think some people are repulsed by the idea of others accumulating wealth. And I think a huge chunk of this of like generalized billionaire disdain is just good old-fashioned jealousy. Yeah, I don't sure. think that's not a factor. And anybody that says it's not is probably lying to themselves. I agree. No, I completely agree. I think it's kind of all of it. And you see, like, I mean, the French were the most... I mean, French get a bad rap, man. Their history, they're way more violent and badass than people think they are. They just killed them. Yeah. They, they just, just rounded up the, essentially like the like what are the metaphoric billionaires at the time and they just murdered them. Yeah. So political violence against people that you don't like. Which is like no. what happened. France, I think, is the most interesting. People compare the United States to uh, Rome and the UK all the time. I think France is more interesting because we are yeah. we our history is one of violence and winning. And like I said at the beginning, the real scary thing about us and not Rome and not China and not the UK and not France is that our population has military grade weapons in their house. Truly, like and a lot that's of them, all over different. the place. Yeah, so like, I mean, when we think about January 6th, the insurrection and all of that, and like the, the worst case scenarios for all of this, like I, t I said to someone, the worst case scenario of January 6th isn't that they overthrow the government and they kill a senator or two. The worst case scenario is that we watch on live television as the National Guard shows what our the pawn level of our army is capable of. That's the worst case scenario. Truly, like if, if they had, like one person was shot and killed for trespassing. Yeah. And like, Look, man, you want to see it is, you, it is what it is. And that's like we've been close with the, the George Floyd protests and some of the riots and marches where police are kind of getting a little aggressive and counter protests and the National Guard has to be called. And you're like, these are the weekend pawns. Yeah. The, the, the Marines and they, the army like that's against the insurrection. People being mad. It would be a half an hour workout for them. Yeah. If, if they had started shooting, if they had right. started like that would be that would have been truly like catastrophic collapse. That would be chaos. At that point, you're like, this is, and then the citizens now understand what is happening, and the National Guard are like, we are, this is the low level. You have no idea what's out there. Dude, it's crazy. Right. So that's to me is like where this gets really scary. Cause like that, we were fucking close to that happening a couple times. Yes, we were. But I do want to circle back to the Atlantic article. And I, yeah. I said something early on where I kind of hinted at this being like, one guy's opinion. You know, he wrote a book, and and like I said, this uh, this uh, Peter Turchin is he's a no kidding researcher. He's a PhD guy. He's a faculty at the Complexity Science Hub Vienna. Uh, he's been a project leader there since 2020. He's written some books, uh, and he studies this this intersection of like the progress of society and historical macro sociology and mathematical modeling of long term social processes. And one of the claims in his bio is that he is a founder of the field of cleodynamics c-l-i-o-d-y-n-a-m-i-c-s cleodynamics 
And so I looked that word up because I had never heard of it before. Mm. And the Wikipedia says that it is a transdisciplinary area of research that integrates cultural evolution, economic history slash cleometrics, macro sociology, the mathematical modeling of historical processes during the longe durée, and the construction of the analysis of historical databases. And then the, this sentence is the key thing here. Cleodynamics treats history as science. So in other words, <sighs> this guy, Peter Turchin, and his research team at the Complexity Science Hub in Vienna, in writing this article and in writing this book, they're basically applying analytics to history. Yeah. And that's fine if you want to do that. But I think it is it's very dangerous to make extraordinary claims that are made like in, in this, that they're these like we've identified two key factors that are always present, economic immiseration and widespread broth of, uh, widespread portions of the populace and overproduction of elites because they base the study on a database of hundreds of societies across 10,000 years. It is really, really shocking that fewer people are not more vocal against this. So I want to give a shout out to a Twitter username, Brett Devereaux, mm -hmm. uh, who I think is, you know, according to his bio, we think he is a, a, an historian. And he said, I want to focus on one claim here, referring to the Atlantic article, because the idea that you could do this over 10,000 years is not very good. In any yeah. event, the issue with his issue with the claim is he says we can't measure either of his two factors, be referring to Turchin's two factors, mass immigration and elite overproduction. We can't measure those factors with any precision in the deep past. So then he starts talking about the Roman Empire. So we've talked about it in this show, and there are some parallels based on what we know and don't know. But he says to take the Roman Empire, which is by far the best evidence ancient empire, except for like Chinese, like certain Chinese dynasties. We have no idea how the size and shape of what is constitutes an elite is changing over centuries or even how many elites the Romans actually had. We have the writings of people who are like the winners of history. We have some of the writings of the people who are losers of history. We have like rosters of names and stuff like that. But the Roman naming conventions and the way that they track time was very, very, like they didn't have a BC reference. So we've had no. to like retrospectively project that map onto... Like, yeah, it was the Gregorians, right? Like in the 1500s, they invented BC, I think. Well, I don't know about 1500s. They invented the they, calendar. But, but, it's, but at some point, it. I mean, maybe they did. But, but the point is, we know how certain subgroups of the elite are changing, and that's based on the sources that we have. But that doesn't necessarily reflect total numbers. And that's one example of a really prominent empire. To say that this is applicable to hundreds of societies across 10,000 years of human history is, I think, a spectacular overreach of analytics. And so Brett Devereaux's basic claim is like, I, I think the way that a modern data scientist would put it is that the data that you have, that are, you're able to draw on from this database, are at best very unclean. And if you're working with unclean data, the results that you get from mathematical analysis are very, very likely to be skewed. And it may be true that elite overproduction is a factor, and it may be true that economic immiseration is a factor. But to say that those two things are like imminent indicators of societal collapse is to say something that I think is a little bit farther than what the data analytics show. And, you know, I don't want to speak for Brett Devereaux, but it seems to me like he's in, in a separate thread discussing this topic. It seems to me like he's saying, look, if you if you treat history as just another form of science, if you apply social science and like STEM principles to analyzing history, that's fine. There are positive contributions that those types of skill sets and those fields have to to add to the study of history. But what it really reflects is an underfunding of like the humanities portion of history, which I think is a much more valuable, much more meaningful yeah. way to approach the study of what has happened in the past and what it means for us today. Yeah. And it's also, that is also a sign of collapse. So the, the, the general sense of like the overproduction of elites to me is related to the five stages of the five life cycles, because you're talking about people getting famous, people using their position to enrich themselves. Um, and then wealthy people, maybe not either doing the right thing or not wanting to be taxed or just not wanting to deal with the whole, um, hamster wheel. And again, the, the, the morality of who should be forced to do what to me is really tricky because hey, like, or hate billionaires, they're also people with rights. I mean, like, that's just a fact. Like that's, yeah, it is. I'm going to say. So like, that's, um, the, who should be forced to do what is always tough. Now the idea that like, as a person who loves history, like a big history nerd, 
Uh, history will one day be science, no question. With the invention of Google, you, you, think so? you will be able to analyze what was happening in every swath of demographic in life forever. Like that, there is so much fucking data. I, if it ever becomes public, that's an extraordinary claim. And 100%, I, I no, just, I, no, I'm on I board. Like, think about it so, hard. So, like, right, what we all of our big questions of history, there are things that we don't know. We color in with primary sources. There will never be those questions again. Like in in 150 years, they will not have questions about that of our life. They will get to know whatever they want. But I, I think it's I think it's one thing to be able to even like look at historical data, like look at examples of like videos of pe- that people take of their lives, or like location information to show exactly where people were at what times and be able to piece that together. But it's another thing to be able to extrapolate a story out of that. I mean, yeah, sure. you can you can put a plot of, of mathematical data on a graph and say like, look, here are peaks and valleys. But it's another thing entirely to be able to interpret that in a meaningful way. And I don't think it's possible, even if you have like AI and even if you have analytics, and by the way, I'm still on the AI is not real train. I think it's just really good computing. But even if you have that really advanced computing capability, and even if you can inject like an artificial intelligence interpretation of what's happening, I still think it's it, like the information doesn't speak for itself. Even after you massage the information. No, it'll be, it'll be different. Keep, yeah, well, I, I think it'll be different. I think it'll be easier for people to get a clearer picture of what this time and place was like. But I still think it's, I mean, it's impossible to truly embody the experience of any other person on earth. So to like say that like history is going to be science, I mean, that is quite literally a science fiction concept. I mean, the the, the Foundation series, beginning with the novel Foundation, right. that was written by Isaac Asimov. Uh, they, they basically, I think they invented the uh, the Hugo Award. And, they probably uh, did. Isaac, that Isaac Asimov right. thought it yeah, was... Yeah. He, he he just assumed it's like oh yeah this is a posthumous thing for J.R.R. Tolkien and like no he won it for a foundation, but the the plot of Foundation is that in the waning days of this far flung future galactic empire, this guy has developed an algorithm using something that they, that Asimov terms psychohistory, which is a new and effective mathematics of sociology. He says, uh, using statistical laws of mass action, it can predict the future of large populations. So this this character is named Harry Seldon. Seldon foresees the imminent fall of the empire, which encompasses the entire Milky Way, and then a dark age lasting 30,000 years before a, a second empire arises. So what this guy has tried to, what Peter Turchin has tried to do, and what people who want history to be science are trying to do is literally replicating the plot of an Isaac Asimov novel where a guy is like, I've figured out all of human history. And yeah. by the way, there are real people in the real world who have actually claimed that they have done something similar to what this character has done. It, they're, like, they're like the doomsday predictors that are like, oh, yeah, May 15th, Yeah, see, they, that, that stuff is, to me, preposterous. And again, shouts to uh, novelists for giving psychos something to aspire to. But... The what I'm saying is more along the lines of right now, if you're a historian trying to do actual historical research or contribute to scholarship, you look at the information available and then draw conclusions. I, and then you have to prove or disprove yourself so you can go in any direction you want. So instead of starting with the question, you start with information and then you go mm. in science. It's, okay. There's a hypothesis so like in the future, not this. The way we study Rome will never change because we don't have fucking data analytics for what they were Googling, obviously. Like, that's (laughs) never going to change. It's not going to change in a million years. Like, it's not... That will never... We have what we have, and that's that. But for people in 150 years studying us, they can approach it with the scientific method. They can ask a hypothesis. They could, they will then be able to go to a database and adjust for something like, I want every uh, white or white presenting male between these ages from this, and we can see what they, those people were into at that time. So instead of saying, I have all of these uh, diaries and letters that they wrote, let's then look for more of them and go this way or that way. They'll just be able to like, click, 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 click. Boom. Here's all of the white people and what they were looking up. And then you can be like, okay, this is where I'm wrong. This is where I'm right. My hypothesis. And it's all retrospective. So again, we on this podcast do not draw conclusions from retrospective data, no matter how much the analysis is. That is idiocy. And at any point in time, people can just decide to do something different. But that's what I'm saying is that the way that we approach history is going to change just because we don't, we can start with a question. Because if you start with a question from Rome and then you look for it, you're just going to self-select and there's nothing there. And like, you got to start with what we do have, not with okay, what so, you want us so, to have. So you're, are, are, would you also say that that's going to lead to a less biased view of history? I have no idea. I think it might lead to a more biased history because you're going to select data. It's like if you just want to know what Americans were thinking, you can just click a box and then you don't have any opinions from black people or LGBTQ people or whatever you want. I think we're going to study it and I think we can get more segregated because you can adjust for variables. 
Wow, that's a that's a really interesting take. Yeah, and, and you know, you, you talk about self selection. This reminds me of uh, I, I'm not going to name this person, and I'm not going to like discuss the details of of the research because, frankly, I think it's garbage. But <laughs> I attended a talk from a sociologist when I was an undergrad, and this was a guy who was like at my institution. And you guys know I went to the greatest institution of higher learning in human history. <sighs> so I went to this talk, and the the guy was like, <sighs> this guy was really famous for writing about like unions and yeah. uh, a lot of like. What, what it would be considered like politically left-leaning stuff. Like he was a big advocate for that in the sociology department. And he did this survey once that was, he tried to correlate the relationship between the presence of unions in labor markets in America with how happy people are and people's general level of like life satisfaction. And he was giving this talk and he's like, yeah, yeah, we found these like highly precise, like R equals 0.05 correlations or R equals 0.95 correlations between the, the activity of unions and the rates of union membership and how happy people are and all this stuff. And at the, in the question and answer period, people were like really impressed. Like, Oh my God. Yeah. This is really amazing. People, there should be more unions cause that'll make people happier. He's like, yes, of course. And someone asked him what the raw data was that he was working on. Like, so he, he said he did surveys. So they asked, what was what, what were the questions that you asked? And he said, we asked one question, and it was on a scale of one to 10, how satisfied are you with your life? Oh. That was the wording of the question. On a yeah. scale of one to 10, how satisfied are you with your life? There was one question. There was no nuance in what people could possibly mean by the word satisfied. There was no, uh, no elaboration, nothing other than this one single question. And this guy took this and just sprinted ahead with it to the conclusion that he had already written about in a multitude of places that more unions are, uh, are better for people's happiness and well-being. Like, of course that's self-selection. Of course the data are going to show, like when, when, when they're that flimsy, of course they're going to show whatever right. conclusion you want yes. to show. Exactly, because he doesn't have like whatever this or that, I mean, and then he the definition of happiness. It. He chose not to go deeper and ask yeah, that, and sure. ask any questions beyond the surface level of like how quote unquote satisfied are you with your life, and do a bunch of mathematical analysis on what really are pretty lame data. So the other thing I think about um, in terms of, and I, I I get really aggressive, aggressively angry with police that don't police themselves, and because I, I I worked in Watch medical. Is the watchman. Yes, I, I worked in medical data for a long time, as I've mentioned many times. And one thing that I really like about medical researchers is uh, there's there are people like the Sackler family who are capable of kind of manipulating the culture and know that people maybe won't read the fine print or how to like they, they very famously manipulated an image in a really dirty way. There was an, a logarithmic image and they made it like a one to one. So that it looked like something wasn't bad, very fucked up shit. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, when you present at meetings like peer-reviewed data, these doctors will rip each other to shreds. Like if you're going to prove that something is a thing, they will go and they'll stand up there and they will ask questions and they'll watch you fumble for your words. I think in history and in other humanities, it's a much more nuanced political or uh, academic political ass kissing. So I think what's happening right now are people that kind of know math are dabbling in other areas where people that don't know math don't know how to eviscerate them. We see this a lot in sports. They're like, well, the data show that the EPA running backs are bad. Like, okay. Well, I know what retrospective data are. I know that you don't have a sample size. I know that this isn't randomized. And I know that essentially this is just content, which is all this history guy is doing with this data. Like this isn't data. If this were presented at a medical meeting or a meeting of engineers, they'd be like, okay, let's look at, look, talk to me about the methods. What are the methods? Yep. Did we randomize yep. any of this? No, it's like, okay, well, you actually wouldn't even be invited to be here. This wouldn't have made it past the, there are, there are fucking grad students whose papers are tighter than yours. You need to leave. Yeah, there's there's subtlety and nuance that have to go along with this, and like the assumption that you can just use data analytics methods. Like we, we've we've talked about this a number of times on the show. There's another article from the Atlantic that I think we've also talked about before. It's called "We Need a New Science of Progress" by Patrick Collison and Tyler Cohen, and they argue, oh, human progress is understudied. We need to research the ways that societies came to be where they are. And I happily I'll report that the broad reception to this was that it's ridiculous, and they're just describing the field of history. They're just <laughs> describing history and they don't yeah. seem to realize it. And they think like, well, you know, STEM methods applied to the study of the past. Like, again, there are positive contributions, I'm sure, but there are also limitations. And I think people's desire to just kind of ignore those limitations in favor of the methodology is a dangerous precedent at best. Yeah. Like when you ever, uh, I got into a fight with someone on, t on Twitter one time about, again, with the sports thing, like they're trying to present to me arguments of why this team should do this or that. Like, oh, can I see your Cox regressional model? Show me your Cox. Hmm? 
because I know <laughs> that's not real. Because I know what a P is, and I and I know what confidence intervals are, and I know what the number should be. And you just told me that the average and median of this, like, mm, no, let's I show me your cocks, and uh, once we have the model, I will, I will accept this. But I'm pretty sure that there's only one uh, Tom Brady, and that you can't duplicate him and throw him into every situation and then randomize those teams and who they're playing against. Cause then that maybe we would have ourselves a data set over 30 years, but I know that that's not possible. So I know you're making this shit up. Yep. Happens all the time. And because you can't replicate Tom Brady and study it that way, uh, we have no data on whether or not America is collapsed except for every great empire has collapsed and risen and collapsed and risen. How about that? That seems and like or a risen. pretty solid historical trend. Yeah, my guess would be that America will not be the greatest country in the world if it is right now forever and no country will ever be. Yeah, uh, no, I disagree. That's All right. I have no data. None. <laughs> uh, so what do you think, Chris? Are we at the end of days? Eventually, someday. No, we're not at the end of days. This AI stuff, this UAP stuff, you guys, get a grip. Let's move are you more together. Are you Come more on. worried about the Canadian wildfires or the uh, self-flying drones? We're worried about Canada in general. I don't trust Yeah, same. Them. Same. Maybe all of this is their fault. Likely. Never know.